Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. We have to start realising that new voices are not just young voices and that we aren't reflecting a big portion of society. What we see on stage or screen is a reflection of the time we live in. From Shakespeare to the present day, we've always used stories to hold a mirror up to the world. We're affected by what we see much more than we think. Our whole worldview can be influenced without us knowing it. But what happens when we never see ourselves? People like us, with problems like ours. Well, that has an impact too. Though representation has become so much better in recent years, many people still struggle to see themselves in the characters and the stories that they watch or read. This can give us a warped view of society and it can make it harder for us to accept that we're normal. My guest today is BAFTA-nominated film director Jules Williamson, whose recent film Off the Rails follows the journey of three women in their 50s as they go interrailing across Europe. Chapter 1. How did I get here? Getting a film made, any film, is a minor miracle, particularly one that breaks the mould and challenges stereotypes. Off the rails follows the journey of Cassie, Kate and Liz, who put old feuds aside in respect of her friend's dying wish, taking her young daughter on an adventure of rediscovery, friendship and forgiveness. The film came out in late July, so by now people will have had a chance to properly grapple with the story and interact with it. Jules says she's felt a real sense of pride about the response to the story. The stories that have come out of the Q&A about women who either feel that they haven't felt represented before and then they've seen this film and obviously that's made a big difference to them or stories about not having really found themselves in this kind of midlife period or stories about women who have in fact had the new beginnings that the film's message is um, trying to convey, I think very powerfully by the response I've had from the audience. And really that people who see the film love it. So that's what I'm proudest of. That response has just warmed the cockles of my heart. It really has been so, so affirming that it was the right story to be telling at at this time, I suppose, in terms of the last 18 months, because it's a story about grief and it's a story about hope. And I think the fact that it's a tribute to my friend Emma, who died, but also obviously to Kelly Preston, that resonates hugely with a lot of people. And, um, you know, it's very emotional for them. And I think people aren't expecting that. But obviously, you know, it has that lovely, warm-hearted fun about it as well. So it's a lovely kind of waves that you ride, I think, when you watch the film. But hopefully, and certainly this is what I've I've found talking to the audiences, there is definitely um, a sense of having kind of had a very satisfying narrative storytelling experience. And that's, that's wonderful. We'll come on to talk about the the genesis of the project and how you actually managed to get it into production. But I just want to stick with that notion of feeling represented or recognizing yourself in a story. And in your story, 
we see these characters talk openly and beautifully and also hilariously about issues that we never really talk about. And I'm thinking specifically of menopause. And these are things that happen to over 50% of the population. And, and yet we spend significantly less than that talking about these issues. And I think there is a real desire and appetite to see female characters that break stereotypes. So we think we know the character of a woman in her 50s. And we probably leap to putting that character into a particular box, which is either wife, mother, or divorcee, or single person. And yet, what I got from this story is a real sense of these characters growing and finding themselves uh, and confronting grief and loss and, and all of and all of that stuff. When you reflect on the reaction that it's had, does it make you even more determined? to give these characters uh, a lease of life that they haven't had before? Do you see that appetite there for the characters like the ones you've created? Yes, yes, very much so. When I, when I first thought about this story, it was 19 years ago, and I had made my first short film. I made, I made three short drama films. My first one was successful. It was nominated for a BAFTA, and it won the Palm Springs Film Festival. And subsequently had meetings afterwards to discuss what I wanted to do next in terms of a feature. And um, there were two films I was developing. This was one of them. And at that point, it was about women in their 40s. And I was in my 30s then. And I had thought it's such interesting territory for telling a story about people who don't necessarily end up where they expect to be in their lives. And when we were interrailing, we used to dance every night to Talking Heads once in a lifetime. And that phrase, and I asked myself, how did I get here, kept resonating in my head personally. So it seemed to me that it was a great, it was a great way to explore that. And I think that um, the people who we had meetings with didn't really see there was a, a, an appetite for telling stories about women in their 40s. And there were obviously films coming out like Bridget Jones, which I love, huge fan of the Bridget Jones films, but she was a younger woman. And I didn't know anything about the menopause until I was getting into my late forties. And I, for various reasons, had to go very in depth with it for my own personal medical reasons. And I was absolutely horrified and really shocked. I, I couldn't believe that I didn't know about it. And I was also really shocked when I read the, the list of 39 symptoms that, um, 34 symptoms rather, that uh, Sally refers to in the menopause scene. So I felt very um, disappointed at that point that, you know, I wasn't getting that kind of response to the film. And we, we got very near to it, but it, I'm afraid it did go before a panel of men with one woman and they just weren't interested. So cut to, as they say, um, a point about seven years ago. And I very much wanted still to be making films, directing films. And I had never given up on that, but I was kind of getting the impression that people thought I had. And I felt that was a reflection on me being a woman of a certain age that 
I wouldn't be doing anything as, you know, uh, exciting or grand, if you like, as directing a feature film. And that just really kind of spurred me on because, you know, I guess we can all be quite bloody minded about things. And that's how I felt. And also I was quite strategic about it. I knew this was something that was important to me to carry on working and um, for all sorts of reasons. And I knew that this was a film that had market value now because films have been made that proved that you can make money out of telling stories that women in midlife will go and see at the cinema or will watch on streamers. And because there are so few of those stories out there, particularly in cinemas, particularly as single feature films, I knew that there would be, you know, um, a hole to fill. So having done this and having had, like I said, um, the responses that I've had, yeah, I'm, I'm very committed to doing more uh, around women in this age group. And I'm developing something at the moment, in fact, uh, which is, is exactly that. Interestingly, since the film's been released and I've been introduced to various people, I've become more and more aware of the fact that, you know, a lot of people in the industry, particularly actresses, I was on a panel for the campaign Acting Your Age on Monday night that Nikki Young has started. And they were all talking about the fact that, you know, it's very difficult to get roles after a certain age. So we were discussing that and the fact I said, well, I think it's because the content's not there. Unfortunately, it's a very deregulated industry, unregulated industry, and people are freelance and self-employed, and they won't necessarily take that risk, whether it's getting a commission or worrying about the next job. You know, I mean, it, it's it's kind of almost like the last taboo ageism in this industry. And I think that it's beginning to gather momentum. And obviously men are on the receiving end of that too. But I do think that women suffer from it uh, more, I would say. Interestingly, Lizzie Frankie was talking recently at an event and she was talking about the fact that we have to start realising that new voices are not just young voices. They are people who are starting in midlife or returning to their uh, job in midlife and that we aren't reflecting a big portion of society as a result. And it was very interesting because Jess Phillips was on this panel and she was saying that, you know, her constituents, if they see themselves represented in a film or on TV about something in particular that they want to talk to her about, they will then come forward and talk about it. So I think also, time's up, Kate Muir was on the panel. She did a documentary with Davina McCall about menopause, which had, you know, a wonderful attention paid to it thank goodness and she uh was saying that time's up are going to take this issue up and start campaigning about it so i think it's gathering ahead of steam um but i feel very passionate about it because i i think i personally you know i was that woman that didn't feel seen and didn't feel heard in my own life i think because i hadn't really had that opportunity to speak and say, say, you know, tell a story that really meant something to me about being a woman who was in, in, in her 50s and somehow needed to find the thing that she'd lost and find that new beginning for herself. So it's, it's kind of my own story, really, if you like, um, that I'm telling. 
Chapter 2 Getting into Character Off the Rails features an impressive cast, including Kelly Preston, Jenny Seagrove, Sally Phillips and Judi Dench. Amazing talent. And this is a film that was turned down in the past. It could so easily have been forgotten about, which would have been a tragedy. But fortunately, Jules is very tenacious. As for the cast, Off the Rails is an ensemble piece. We truly believe that these people have a shared past and we care about how that past is influencing their present. Actors aren't just puppets who show up to fill a role. If you're writing for stage or screen, you need to write something that an actor can buy into, something they care about, so that they can completely immerse themselves in it. I met them when we were in Mallorca. We had very little time together. We had approximately a day to go, we had a dinner and then a day to go through the story and the script. But very, very quickly we formed a bond. And I think that it was mainly to do the chemistry between the actresses. You know, they, they, just, they just hit it off. I mean, they'd only spent um, a few hours together. I think they'd arrived the night before. And when I met them, I felt like they'd all known each other for quite a long time. And I think the fact that the story had been um, inspired by my own life, that Emma, my friend, had it was a tribute to her. They were really interested in that side of things. So that kind of bonded us, definitely, from, from the start. And really, you know, we, we were working at such a pace. We had a schedule of 36 days and we had, sorry, 26 days and we had 38 locations. That is fast and furious. So we had to bond, really. And, you know, it took, um, I would say it would took about sort of a couple of days to ease in. But after that, it was just like we were just all mates. And what was wonderful, and I still feel that very much so now from Jenny and Sally and Lizzie, is that, you know, we all had each, each other's backs. We all had, had each other's backs. And that was very precious. We all wanted the best for the film. And we were all protecting each other. And we wanted to make sure that we told the story in the best way possible. So, you know, that was kind of amazing. And I've worked with actresses before, you know, I've directed uh, soap. I did a, a soap years ago for a year. So that was um, obviously working with actors. I trained as an actress for three years before I got into film and TV. I had worked as an assistant director and a runner. So I worked with quite big names in those roles. I was working in feature films uh, with companies like Working Title and David Putnam. So I worked with people like Glenn Close, Melanie Griffiths, Emma Thompson, Jeff Goldblum. So I was kind of used to being around actors of that stature. So I wasn't really phased by that. I was more phased by the idea that I got four actors that I needed to cover. I needed to get coverage on all of them, you know, on a very tight schedule and, make, and get really great performances. And obviously the visual aspect is critical. And that's something that really fascinates and interests me. And I worked very collaboratively with the um, director of photography, Mike Ely, who is a brilliant. I mean, he's, you know, he's done so many amazing films and had said to me, as we know each other, he'd said, if you do this film, I'll come and shoot it for you. So that was a wonderful experience. And then when it came to Judy Dench, interestingly, the speech that she makes at the beginning of the film, I'd always in my head thought the speech should be 
as if Judy Dench is saying the words because she has this extraordinary brittle emotion that is heartbreaking. So that is, I, you know, to a large degree how it's been written. And then we found out that she was going to play the part of Diana and uh, that was thrilling for everybody. And there is a certain pressure about having a day that is specifically for Judy's performance. So it was known as the Judy Day. And um, I was in the edit and one of the producers, uh, Sarah, came in with a phone number and said, oh, Judy, I'd like to talk to you about the, um, the character. So I thought, all right, okay, here we go. And uh, gave her a ring and immediately, what was fascinating uh, was her curiosity and interest in wanting to know everything about the character and the context of the character within the story. So there was a platform to collaborate right from the start. And that became a, a very, very rich experience for me because working, kind of been given that opening, if you like, to, you know, just to get on and direct somebody and do the work um, because that's what they expect you to do with somebody like Judy Dench is, uh, is, well, it's a privilege really to work with somebody who's that brilliant at her craft and to, to, you know, to play within that arena. And she expected me to direct. And so I got on with it and did it. And I, oh, she was just wonderful. I can only imagine what it was like. Writers often don't think about those issues. They don't, I always want, I always think that if, if you wish to be a writer for the screen, then perhaps the best education you can have is, is all of the roles that you described actually is you know, being a runner on set, being a production assistant, whatever it might be. Because if you write something on the page, it has consequences in terms of what you said, 26 days, 38 locations. That's an insane schedule. And I often think that writers don't necessarily consider that, nor do I, do I think they consider enough of how curious actors and actresses are in terms of the characters that they're asking, we're asking them to bring to life. And writers tend to sometimes default to having characters that exist purely to serve the narrative arc of another character, which of course means that the character that they're writing isn't interesting and, and, and doesn't change and doesn't do any of the things that we want. So fascinating to hear that that's what Judy was doing. In terms of, you mentioned coverage and trying to make sure that you had angles on all of them. These are characters and therefore performances that demand screen time, don't they? That you can really see. I found myself wanting to see what, for example, what Jenny's reaction to something might be or, or what Sally's character might be doing uh, at any given time. But there's only so much you can put on, on the page. And that was done, they all arrived the night before. So that was not like you had any real rehearsal time. It was, we're just going to have to get this done. That, that's, that doesn't come across in the performances. It comes across that this was a company that had worked long and hard. So the fact that you were able to produce that is as I said earlier, nothing short of a minor miracle. So congratulations to everyone. Well, thank you. And I think, like I said, you know, it really was because we, um, I guess I, I, working in documentaries as well means that I am quite informal. I mean, I, I understand the structure of a set, like I said, because I have been an assistant director and I have done, you know, I have directed drama before this. And I am... Um, 
happy and enjoy the spontaneity that documentaries bring. And I wanted that to, to appear on screen. So organically, like I said, we became great buddies and we could form this little gang. But also I was aware of the fact that if we were in a scene or starting a scene, we would talk about the scene. We would get, we would, we would understand each other really very quickly. You know, they're really, really bright, bright women, those actresses, phenomenally bright and instinctive and quick and sharp and funny and greatly empath empathic as well. And so we were able to kind of shortcut things really quite quickly. And interestingly, the sound uh, assistant said to me one day, you're a bit like a Svengali figure because what happens is that you kind of kind of wind the situation up at the beginning of the scene and kind of create this environment, which, which is what the scene is supposed to be saying in the story. And then you kind of let it go and watch it. And then you know exactly when you've got it and you say, right, that's great, let's move on. And I, I couldn't frankly receive a better compliment than that because I think that probably is my style. I'm sure lots of other directors do that as well. But um, I gave them room to play. And, you know, that's a joyful experience, isn't it? You know, it's, it's wonderful. And also because the story has been so close to me for so long, seeing it being played out, I would give very strong emotional reactions, whether I laughed or I cried. And so they were always aware of how I would react to something. And I think that we all fed off each other, really, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. The genre that you're the, of the film that you're making is is one that we think we have a good understanding of. We we know, for example, what, so we're expecting to go on a physical but also a, a metaphorical journey um, in in a film like this or in a story like this. We know that it's not necessarily about the destination or whether they make it on time to the place without giving any spoilers um, away. There is, a, there is a ticking clock to this story, isn't there? And they need to be in a certain location at a certain time to see a certain thing um, as a group. But actually, what you come to understand is that whether they make it there or not isn't really the point of this. The point is the change that they go on. So in that regard, it, it hits all of the beats that you would expect of a film like this. What I took away from it, though, Jules, was the fact that it, even though it was familiar, it also has the capacity to surprise and delight you. And for me, I think that comes in the changes that occur in the characters, the realizations that they come to and the acceptance of where they are now, not where they thought they would be or where they wanted to be, but where they are now as characters. And they take a lot of strength and comfort from that. And sometimes that is part of life, isn't it? Is realizing that, okay, when you were 20, you wanted to do this, you know, 50 and, and you haven't done that and you're never going to go that. And that's okay. You can grieve for that and then let it go. But there's a real celebration in the characters of who they have become, which I found very empowering and I wonder whether that's sort of the, that some of the feedback that you've had from audiences um, like this because we don't necessarily see those stories particularly not from a female perspective but it was has that come through in, in some of the sessions that you've been doing with audiences and, and the feedback that you've had? Yes it has it has I think that's such a such an accurate and interesting observation that you kind of, and honestly, I, I'm, I'm 
guilty is that guilty of this very much so you somehow feel but I've not necessarily directing a feature film although you know it could be applied to that directing your first film it's a big deal but you kind of think okay well I've done that but now this should happen because that's what the stories tell you you know that everything's wrapped up with a bow or everything's you know struck by lightning but as you say life's not like that and actually the shift is the thing it's not necessarily the neatly tied up outcome and I find that absolutely fascinating and I'm going through a shift if you like myself you know at the moment because of the film coming out and what that means for me and I don't really know quite where that will lead me so I know where I want it to but for those characters they as you say don't necessarily know where they're going and that's the point of the story the point of the story is that they found the ability to cliche though it is live in the moment and through the power of their friendships that has enabled them to feel secure in their own destinies, whatever those destinies might be. Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Over the course of the show, we've uncovered dozens of lessons that have been extracted from over 50 fascinating conversations. We've picked three, and now we'd like you to narrow this down to one. Pick one of the lessons we've selected and write a short story of no more than a thousand words and then send it to us. At the end of the series, we'll pick two winners. We will pay each writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of series four. Go to behindthespine.co.uk and click on the writing competition for more details. But now, back to the show. Chapter 3. In Memory of Kelly Preston. There is an additional layer of poignancy to this film that I'd like to touch on. Kelly Preston, who plays the role of Cassie, sadly passed away from breast cancer in July last year. The film is her final on-screen appearance, and it is dedicated to her memory. For the team, it really changed the way they felt about the film. Not just the process of making it, but the story itself. We had finished editing. We were four months into lockdown. It was early summer last year and we'd we'd finished the post, we'd finished the edit. The last time I had spoken to Kelly was during uh, an ADR session, which had been five months previously. And I was aware there was something not, not, you know, things weren't too good, but I didn't really know to what extent. So it was, uh, yeah, devastating. And it had that terrible... Oh, um, it reminded me a lot of hearing of uh, my friend um, Emma. So <clears throat> it had a lot of resonance for me. Um, but for everybody, you know, the cast, Bill, I mean, Bill adored Kelly. They got on so well. They were very close. And he was absolutely just devastated by it. So we all shared that loss, which, you know, <laughs> helped to some extent. Um, but then I couldn't, I just couldn't watch the film for months, actually. I just couldn't bring myself to watch it. And then I, I, I did for various reasons. And it was, yeah, it was, it really took me aback. It, 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 I found it very difficult, actually. Um, but what I would say 
is that she wanted, she would have wanted this film to celebrate everything that we've we've talked about. She would want it to be celebrating women of a certain age. She would want it to be celebrating life because she was so full of life, so charismatic and funny and energized and sharp and witty and kind. You know, she was just a blast. And um, I know that she would obviously expect us to miss her. Why would she not? Of course she would, but she would also want us to be celebrating her and her life. And I think, I hope that this film does that. Um, Obviously all the glorious performances she gave prior to this, which have been amazing, but it's something obviously that spoke to her. The story must have spoken to her because she was so passionate about doing the film. And you can understand why the story spoke to her, obviously, when you see it. And, you know, she has her own daughter who was a similar age to Maddie. And she was so excited about it coming out and us all getting together again. So, you know, that that's it was a very difficult experience going through the premiere and the publicity. We all found that quite, quite tough. I can imagine. And my own as an audience member when I when I watched it, but um, particularly when I watched it the first time, the conclusion that I came to was essentially there is a there is a beautiful and yet tragic parallel between Anna and Kelly, Anna's whose who's dying wish drives these characters on the story that we then follow them on. But it was an absolute joy to watch her performance. And there is a real celebration of life that comes through in that, irrespective of what then later happened, which is really what the story is about. It is a joyous celebration. Yes, there are tears along the way. Of course there are. We expect them and demand them in stories like this. But you get to the end, there is a celebration of who we are and and, and where we've where we've ended up, um, irrespective of where we thought we would be. It's a celebration. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And because we were talking about that a little bit before we started talking about Kelly, when we did that final scene, I had in my head the um, end of Thelma and Louise, which weirdly is an open ending, even though you know that they're obviously going off a cliff. But as I'm sure uh, you and the listeners will know, there was a very definite uh, intent to keep the car in an upward trajectory so that it didn't feel like a, you know, a downer ending. And Thelma and Louise is one of my favourite all-time films. And, you know, when I saw that, I was me and my friend Jackie, who I'm still great mates with, we were desperate to get in a car and go on a road trip. So I'd always kind of wanted to have something of Thelma and Louise in that. And I I did manage to get a bit of that in in one of the scenes earlier as well. But I literally shoplisted the the last scene in accordance with the, the shots that we used for the final scene between Thelma and Louise and the car before they drive away, if you like. And I wanted that if that sort of sense of you don't quite know where they're going. You don't, but obviously you know where Thelma and Louise are going, but it's more than that. It's so much more than that. And I wanted the same feeling for the viewers at the end of the film. So I can't really give it away, but it, it has hopefully an uplifting feeling and a and a question mark, but it, but a, but a sort of knowledge of of the fact that you know they're going to be all right. Yes, and it really does succeed. Um, off the rails is in cinemas now I would encourage anybody to to look at it how about international audiences um Jules is it getting a theatrical release elsewhere other than the UK it's in Spain at the moment and actually I did about nine interviews last week 
fascinating interviews, interesting questions that haven't come up necessarily in UK interviews. And the Spanish see the themes of, of renewal, if you like, death and renewal in the story, as well as that, you know, we are kind of missing a lot of the fact that it is a very funny film. And I have to say, I spent a lot of time laughing uproariously while we were filming it because, you know, well, we just, we just all made each other laugh so much. And um, they're just very different questions and they see very different things. And I said to a friend of mine who lives in Mallorca, God, they were such fascinating interviews. I so enjoyed my nine back-to-back interviews in my Spanish junket on Zoom, <laughs> but I loved them. And she said, well, that's because they're European and they see cinema in a different way to how the UK see it. And they see women in a different way to how the UK see women. And I think that's very true. And it very much came out in those interviews. Um, we wish you well with the film. It is a delight and you should be very proud of it. And congratulations to everyone involved. One final question, if I may, Jules, what does the future hold? What are you working on next? Is there anything you can tell us about that? Well, I'm, well, what I also didn't say, sorry, is that the film is coming out in the US in uh, December, uh, which will be interesting and hopefully exciting. And it's also got a wide release in Australia going out in over 300 cinemas so that's also great well I would just I'd love to direct a musical that has always been a dream for me but I'd also love to direct a a war film which is um, something I was developing 20 years ago as well and take after one of my uh, two of my great heroes Susanna White and Catherine Bigelow and I kind of don't see why you should be as a director stereotyped into certain things so I would love to make a film about Fleetwood Mac as, in, as well, about the making of rumours. But I am developing something which is about women in their 50s, three characters, which are based, two of them, on real women. And it's in the northeast of England where I live. I live in Newcastle. It's about the identity of the area and the identity of these women and how the two interlink. It's the kind of years, the, the few years leading up to Brexit and how that area felt left behind, similarly to how women in their 50s often feel left behind. So it's a comedy drama again, and hopefully, you know, hopefully a, a bit of a road trip and a, another banging soundtrack. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Jules Williamson, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Jules Williamson for today's episode. And to recap... What have we learned? We need to see more roles opening up for minority groups and to tell more taboo stories. As a writer, you have the power to make that happen. These roles can only appear if the stories are being written. If you write diversity into your stories, you give more actors a chance of showcasing their craft. Representation on screen has real-world implications. That's true of everything from age to ethnicity to socioeconomic background. Seeing someone in your position can embolden you to take real-world action. And the converse is also true. If you're working with actors, allow them room to play. They're not puppets filling a role. Make sure they fully buy into your story. Let them add their own creativity, personality and spontaneity to it. Destinations are powerful tools in writing. They allow you to create common ground among your characters. But the destination is never the reward. 
the neatly tied up ending is just a fraction of the reader or the viewer's experience. As a writer, always focus on the journey. And finally, sometimes it pays to imagine a scene being performed by the actor of your dreams. Not only does it allow you to create a well-rounded, coherent personality and voice, you never know, you may end up casting that very actor. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and next week we'll be taking inspiration from Jules's comments about death and rebirth, examining how different cultures view each of them. Let us know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine, and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. In the meantime, give us a like and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Oligiu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.